Welcome to the Verse by Verse podcast, a ministry of the Friendship Congregational Bible Church. I'm Richard Church, the teacher on Verse by Verse, and I'm glad you've joined with us today as we study together God's infallible word, verse by verse. Today's lesson is from a series of messages that I preached originally at Grace Bible Church in Warren, Michigan last year for their annual Bible conference. My family and I had a great time of Bible study and fellowship with Pastor Tom Bruchet and the rest of the saints there at Grace Bible Church. And I think you'll find this to be an edifying series of lessons as we examine the divine institutions that God lays out in his word, starting right in the very first chapters of the book of Genesis. Do Do you get the point here that for believers... Divorce isn't an option. No matter who the, the spouse is and whether they're a believer or not, it's not an option. That's a, that's a binding commitment. That's a binding commitment that, that is to last for a lifetime. And uh, one, of the, one of the things that he gives there, verse 16, he says, What knowest thou, O wife, whether thou shalt save thy husband? Or how knowest thou, O man, whether thou shalt save thy wife? It's, it's, it's possible that through the witness of that spouse, it may take, years and years, but through the witness of that spouse that the unbelieving spouse comes to be a believer. And uh, what better person to witness to them than that person that they're able to observe day after day and, and you know, see that Christian testimony and see that changed life and see that, that willingness to honor marriage as God has defined it even though there's a, you know, a, a certain degree in which those people can't have spiritual fellowship together. What greater testimony than that? Um, so so uh, there he deals with those issues. Uh, I want you to skip down to, come down to verse 25. He says, Now concerning virgins, I have no commandment of the Lord, yet I give my judgment as one that hath obtained mercy of the Lord to be faithful. Now again, this doesn't affect the inspiration of the passage here. Um, all of this is the word of God, as it's, it's written by inspiration. But uh, he says in verse 26, I suppose, therefore, that this is good for the present distress. I say that it is good for a man so to be, to remain unmarried. He's kind of going back and touching on this issue again. And you see he mentions the present distress. But By the way, when you get into Paul's later epistles, you don't find him encouraging singleness as much. For instance, in this passage, he says widows in general would be better if they don't marry. Later on in Timothy, he says younger widows should marry. He highly encourages them to remarry. Okay, So there's some things that are based on, on the circumstances as well. But the, the normal practice, he talks about the present distress here, and he, he talks about how because of that distress, if there were cases where those who had wives were going to be, have, to, have to be as if they weren't married. You think about times of, of tribulation, times of persecution, and a man who's going to have a family uh, who is being called to renounce his faith or face execution He's got some extra things to think about than just whether he as an individual is going to be put to death, right? He's got that, that family that he's responsible for. 
And uh, one of the reasons that Paul talks about singleness here is because of what he calls that, that present distress. Um, so he says, it's, it's good for a man so to be. Now, here's some verses I want to get to because they, they clear up some issues about some things. He's, he, he certainly dealt with married people at this point, uh, not divorcing. But I want you to notice in verse 27, he reiterates again. He says, art thou bound unto a wife? Seek not to be loosed. If you're married, don't get divorced. Are thou bound unto a wife, seek not to be loosed. And he says, art thou loosed from a wife, seek not a wife. If you're divorced, what Paul recommends is don't get remarried for some of the same, same reasons. Uh, anybody who's been divorced and remarried can tell you that there are unique problems that that brings to a marriage that a first-time marriage doesn't have. Uh, that's, that's especially true when there's children involved, but it's, it's just as much true Uh, even if there aren't any children involved. And he recommends there, seek not a wife, but I want you to notice verse 28. He says, but and if thou marry, thou hast not sinned. Okay? Now, I I don't know why people get confused about this because the verses are very clear. Right? He says, art thou loose from a wife, seek not a wife, but and if thou marry, thou hast not sinned. When it comes to the issue of remarriage, the, you know, divorce, divorce for, for a believer is always sin or the result of sin, somewhere, somewhere along the line, right? And you see, he doesn't give really any liberty there for the believer to seek to be divorced. But what about somebody who's already divorced, okay? Uh, some people would say that divorce itself isn't valid, that God still considers those people married. But you see through Scripture that when people are divorced, God considers them not married anymore. All right? So, so uh, is there liberty to remarry? He says here, don't do it. But he says, if you do, you haven't sinned. Okay? He says, but and if thou marry, thou hast not sinned. And if a virgin marry, she hath not sinned. Nevertheless, here's the warning, Nevertheless, such shall have trouble in the flesh, but I spare you. He says, I give you, I give you permission. You're going to have trouble. Don't do it. <laughs> but he says, it's not, it's not sin for you to do it. Okay. Now, uh, we, could, we could continue on in the passage here, and, and there's some uh, additional things we could look at. But I want, I want to get over to Ephesians chapter 5. A lot of those things in 1 Corinthians 7 are very technical questions about who should get married, who, who shouldn't. But we want to see something about what, what God's design is in marriage. We saw last time how with the fall, their conflict comes into that union. I mean, Adam and Eve are married before the fall, but then after the fall, God God uh, says that these areas of, of marriage and also family are, are going to be these areas of conflict, of sorrow. Uh, and for, for the believer in Christ, God has laid out a standard that is especially clear now in the dispensation of grace for what marriage ought to be. And it's here in Ephesians chapter 5 that... Verse 21 says, we're kind of breaking into the context here, but he says, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. And the verses that follow, the rest of chapter 5 into chapter 6, it's dealing with specific individuals in certain situations and how they 
submit themselves one to another in those situations. Later in, in chapter 6, he even talks about, for instance, uh, servants or, or employees and employers and, and uh, these kinds of things. But he begins by talking about wives and husbands. And he says in verse 22, Ephesians 5, verse 22, it says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord, the church. Verse 30 says, for we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. And verse 31, here's this quote again. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. And he says, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Now, for, for people, you know, just lost people out in the world, when it comes to matters of marriage, generally when, when they're looking at, you know, what, how, how individuals ought to behave in marriage, um, they often are looking at what is going to make both of those people the most happy. What's going to make them happy and satisfied in that marriage? And, you know, Paul, talking about marriage, presents a much higher vision for marriage than that. Uh, you know, two lost people can have a, a, a relatively happy and successful marriage, uh, without any instruction from the Word of God or, or anything like that, and yet it still misses the point of marriage, at least in the dispensation of grace. You see, here Paul presents marriage as something that is a picture of Christ and the church. And, our, you, know, you know, you can teach people things by taking them to Scripture and showing them things to Scripture, but you realize everything you do teaches people that observe what you do. And you know that your marriage teaches people something about Christ and the church. And here when Paul says, wives submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord, he doesn't say to do that because your husband is smarter than you are. He doesn't say to do that because um, men are superior to women. He doesn't say it for any of those reasons. He says it because he says that, that uh, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he's the savior of the body. And so he tells wives to submit to their husbands because it's a picture of the, the submission of the church to Christ. Now, that doesn't, that doesn't leave a lot, of, uh, a lot of leeway there. When you think about what is the submission that the church owes to Christ, it's absolute submission, right? It's absolute submission that the church owes to Christ. And that's how he says that the wife is to be is to be subject to her husband. 
But oftentimes when these matters are, are preached on, it, it's only preached on from that direction, right? Much of, the, much of the focus when you hear preaching on headship and submission, they focus a lot more on the submission than they do on what the headship is. Or when they talk about headship, it's just the idea of authority and, and therefore wives are supposed to submit to the authority. Um, some of that, I suppose, is, is because men are the preachers and they're the ones preaching it. But you notice that there are many more verses in that passage dealing with the men than there are dealing with the women. And certainly when you talk about the responsibility of the church to submit to Christ, that responsibility is great, but who did the greater work in that relationship and in that arrangement? It wasn't the church, it was Christ, right? And if the, if the woman's role is to submit to her husband as the church submits to Christ, that means that, you know, the woman corresponds to the church, the man submit, or, or corresponds to Christ, right? And so, the, so the, the husband's responsibility is to be to his wife, in a sense, what Christ is to the church. Now, where's, where's the higher responsibility there? Uh, yeah, there's a responsibility for the wives to submit themselves unto their husbands as unto the Lord, but you see it says, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. And you think about how Christ loved the church. That's, a, that's not a little bit of love. That's a great love. And he gave himself for it. Um, you understand that when a, when a man and a woman enter into marriage, yes, the man becomes the head in that, in that arrangement, but a man shouldn't be getting married just to have somebody else under his authority, Okay. I mean, if you need more people under your authority, get a, get a job that puts people under your authority or something like that. But uh, you see, Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. And when a man is entering in, when he leaves father and mother and cleaves to his wife and they're made one flesh. Now, if he just leaves father and mother and he doesn't cleave to a wife and he hasn't made one flesh, all right, he's, you know, he's free to, to go and, and, you know, Take on the world, and he's under his own headship, and there's, and there's not a lot of responsibility there. But when he cleaves unto that wife, and they're one flesh, now there's a great responsibility there. And as children are born to that marriage, there's a greater responsibility. But you see, uh, it, it says that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, and he gave himself for it. And it says that he, that he did that in verse 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. And what sanctify means is it means to set something apart in the sense of, of you're making that thing special from, from everything else. And, you know, that's what a, a man does in marriage. He's taking this woman and he's setting her apart and saying, this is my wife. This is my wife. She's set apart. And... It says that he would cleanse it by the washing of water by the word. Verse 27, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Now, as, as you look around at the church, the body of Christ, do you see any blemishes and spots and wrinkles and those kinds of things? We do. Right? And, and as we look at ourselves as members of that church, we see those things. Is when, when it says that he would set 
the church, presented to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Is God just delusional uh, about, about who we are? Is he just delusional about our flesh? N- no, what God does is on, he, through an act of his will, on the basis of the cross of Christ and the shed blood of Christ, he views us as what he describes there, perfect, glorious, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That's a man's responsibility to his wife. It's easy to, to find the faults, right? If God wanted to look at the church and he wanted to see the faults, there would be plenty of faults there to see, but he chooses not to do that. He sets it apart to himself as a, as a, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. What a, what a responsibility that God places on husbands to do that same thing with regard to their wives, to say, this is my wife. This woman is sanctified to me and is set apart. And I can, you know, you, you can do that on the same basis that God does it, on the basis of the, the blood of Christ. He died for your wife's sins just like he died for yours. All right? And if God's willing to, to uh, you know, justify and, and uh sanctify and, and glorify that woman that you're married to on the basis of the cross of Christ. If God is willing to say she's righteous and holy and, and perfect, then you probably can do that too. Okay? And th- this is, he says, verse 28, so ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. And, you know, we spend a lot of time caring for our bodies, feeding our bodies, dressing our bodies, uh, you know, doing all th- kinds of things with regard to the body. We love our bodies quite a bit. What it says is that a man, that same care that he has for his own body, for his own needs, his own flesh, his wife is one flesh with him. And we're to have that same care, that same love for our wives. And, and again, he relates all this to Christ and the church. See, our marriages teach something to people around us about Christ and the church. And... They teach that, they teach that for, for husbands and wives in interacting with one another. They teach that for children. You know, the, the, um, we talked, we talked uh, earlier today about the commandment to honor father and mother. And we, we haven't talked much about family here tonight. But, you know, the very first place where children learn about authority is in the home. The very first, the, the best examples they see of how authority ought to function and submission to authority ought to function is with mothers and fathers. And uh, it's, no, it's no accident that most people, their natural view of God, without, without getting instruction from the revealed word of God, uh, most people's natural view of God as they describe God, just, you know, just some lost pe- person that's going to describe their conception of God, you will find very often that the way they describe God very much resembles their father. And that's a, when, when you consider, you know, you think about the, the cultural ramifications of these various institutions. When you have so many homes with absent fathers, whether they're physically absent or whether they're just sort of emotionally and, and spiritually absent, is it any wonder that you see atheism on the rise? Um, when, when you see abusive and, and overbearing fathers, is it any wonder that you see children who grow up to hate God and not want to have anything to do with God? It, it's, that's a very natural thing. 
uh, you know that, that um, statistics show there was a study that was done several years ago, and it was about church attendance. Now, this study was not taking into account whether people were actually saved or not or, or anything like that, but it was just about, about church attendance. And, and the, the results don't really, it doesn't really matter whether the people tr- were truly saved or not because it demonstrates how, how the family functions and what the results of that are. And what they were studying is they were looking at church attendance when someone was growing up and how that translates to church attendance then when they are adults. And they took, first of all, sort of the traditional family, mother and father, with their children who the whole family went to church together. And I don't remember the specific numbers, but from that, there was a certain percentage of children that were raised that way, the whole family going to church together, that when they were adults, continued attending church. Okay? It was a fairly high percentage. Uh, Then they took, as what happens in, in many families, where... Just the mother took the children to church. And, you know, mothers often have, especially with regard to their children, often have a, a, very, a very acute awareness of the spiritual need to make sure those children are brought up with some kind of a, you know, some kind of a church background. And when, when the mothers were the ones that brought the children to church, the result was when those children are adults, a very, very low percentage of them continue attending church. But it's not just due to the fact that there was only one parent there. It, it, it very much is affected by which parent it was because they also looked at a situation where it was just the father, just the father who made sure the children were in church, you know, took the children to church and made sure they went to church. And the end result of that was, was actually even higher Get this, it was even higher than the whole family going together. And I don't know what the reason for that is. I suspect that just because the whole family goes together doesn't mean it's the father leading the family to church. Sometimes the whole family goes together and it still is the mother leading the family to church, right? But that's the impact that a, that a father, that godly leadership has in a home, it has a, a great effect. Now, that's not to minimize the the effect of a godly mother. Certainly, many people would have a a testimony of a godly mother that had a great influence on them even without that father. But when you take those statistics and aggregate, you see the the effect that a father has. And it ought to just underscore that that responsibility. There's a responsibility there in marriage, and there's a responsibility with regard to family with fathers to be leaders. And, And very often, that's where much more of the fault lies. Now, sometimes in families where you have a husband and a father who has not been the leader, and the wife has filled in that position because she saw the need, and when, when that husband and father decides or starts to show some leadership with regard to spiritual things, there can be some pushback, right? Because that wife who's been, gotten used to that position, it's hard to, it's hard to give up that position. And sometimes that can cause some conflict. But these instructions that, that Paul gives here regarding marriage, it, it really reveals some, some differences that God has put in men and women and their needs from a marriage. All right? Men and women are different. No matter what the culture says, the culture more and more tries to say there, there's no difference. Right? 
And that's what the trend has been, is taking away the difference, taking away the differences in, in dress between men and women, taking away the differences in, in authority between men and women, taking away all the differences between men and women. Is it any wonder that you see, uh, the, I mean, the end result of that would be to say men and women are completely interchangeable. So you see the rise of all kinds of sexual perversion and, and that kind of thing. It's just the end result of that. All right? But God has made men and women naturally very different. And that's not to say that, that, you know, it's true of every individual man or every individual woman. But here, when, when he describes it, when he sums up at the end of chapter 5, and he says, nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. You see, there's something different required of the husband and something different required of the wife. And often, Conflict comes up in marriage because men are expecting their wife to respond like men do, like he would, and wives are expecting their husbands to respond like women do, and and there's just a complete disconnect. You see, it says there that, that the man is to love his wife. And when it comes to that marriage relationship, that's that's in most cases the greatest need that a wife has from her husband is to know that she is loved and to have the, the security that comes with that love. Now, most men don't experience that need to the same degree. We tend to be more, more independent, more individualistic. And, and um, you know, there's a, there's a certain sense of need to be loved, but not, not in the same way. And, but you see what it says to the wife. The wife see that she reverence her husband. Men generally have more of a need to be respected. You see? Now, you see how that can lead to a, a disconnect in a lot of cases, okay? And where, where uh, a man may, may show, he wants to be respected, and show, he shows respect to his wife in certain ways, but doesn't show that kind of loving kindness that it describes here. And she feels unloved, and he feels like he's loving her because he's giving her what he would want, but she doesn't feel loved. And then vice versa, the same, the same kind of thing. Uh, and, and that leads to a lot of the, the conflict, but in most cases you find that that verse, just that verse where it's really describing those greatest individual needs of men and women in marriage, it, it, when you apply it, it clears up so many, so many things that come up. Um, that's why the wife gets upset when the husband is late and he doesn't call, because that's something that affects that, that sense of security Right now, you know, a man doesn't expect another man to check in with him all the time and, and that kind of thing, but that that threatens that sense of security. You know, where he he's not here. Where is he? He should be here. Um, on the other hand, you know, when a when a man is asking his wife to do something and and her instant response is to try you know fight against that or or, or whatever. Um, that affects that sense of respect, and he feels like he's not being respected. And these, these roles are there. Again, the highest good in marriage is not for everybody to be happy. The highest good in marriage is for that marriage to reflect the relationship between Christ and the church. But when you do that, and those individuals are, are saved individuals and are, are wanting to see the Lord glorified, that leads to happiness in that marriage. And, and people start to find out that, they're happy doing things in that marriage 
because it glorifies Christ that in their flesh they just never would be happy doing, you know, providing that, that leadership when you don't necessarily want all that responsibility to, to make those choices and, and be that leader. Men often don't want to be that leader, but to do it because it glorifies Christ. And to, for a wife to submit to a husband, even to a husband that's unreasonable at times and, and uh, that, is, that is wrong often, uh, but to do it because it brings glory to Christ, you see, that's something that can, that can bring happiness. These things, when we apply these things, it's, it's a radical change from what's going on in the world. In the world, people are just, you know, they've got maybe some upbringing, how they were brought up, although at, at this point, you know, we're, we're a couple generations past the, the, the sexual revolution and these kinds of things, and most people don't have any kind of traditional upbringing even to rely back on. And most people are just sort of trying to, to muddle through and, and find out what's going to make them happy. But for, for believers, that's not what the goal is. The goal is how do we glorify Christ in these things, and how do we reclaim those institutions and have Christ magnified in our marriages and in our families. Hi, I'm Richard Church, the teacher here on Verse by Verse. I'm glad you've listened to our podcast today, and I would like to let you know that if you have any questions about anything you've heard here, you can contact me by email at richard at richardchurch.com or by telephone 608-339-9522. I also encourage you to check out our church website at www.friendshipbiblechurch.com. Thank you for joining us today, and our prayer is that this program would be a blessing to you in helping you to grow in your understanding of God's grace.